Have you noticed how close we're getting to the finish of the book of Hebrews? You certainly have to put on Jewish shoes to, to understand this book, walk through its content and gain something from it. Not as much as they gained, but we can still see the arguments and the parallels between the superiority of Christ's kingdom and the inferiority of a shadow that merely bespoke of Christ and his kingdom. We're in uh, verse 12 of chapter 13 uh, and the writer is still uh, speaking in terms of faith being very crucial very critical uh, crucial to the believer uh, faith is the victory that overcomes the world uh, faith is the only thing that holds us together in times of spiritual need and disaster uh, and fears and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God we don't realize the nutrients that we gather when we study the word of God we walk away and we think well now what did I read well I can't exactly remember but your mind your soul is being fed with nutrients that will aid you in the day of need. When the day you have to run, those nutrients and things that you've been eating in physical food will be there. So it is with spiritual. Uh, you may not be able to recall all that you've read in your daily study of God's Word, but it builds in you a framework of confidence, assurance, and remembrance uh, because when times come and you need it, it's there. At least that's what I have seen all of my life. And that's what the writer is uh, assuring him of, that faith is the victory. It's uh, very crucial to the believer. And so maintaining faith is continuing to study and read the Word of God. That continues to build us up, encourage us, and uh, sometimes we get in a low and uh, we'll go to the medicine cabinet and maybe take some vitamins. Well, that's what the Word of God is. is vitamins to the soul. So here in verse 12, uh, where we're beginning this morning, uh, he begins with a, uh, another Hebrew sacrifice. And he's showing... Uh, the parallel between Christ's sacrifice and this Hebrew sacrifice. He's showing the parallel. And uh, so beyond the peace offering that he talked about last week, there are other parallels to be drawn from the Hebrew sacrifices. And of course this one here in verse 12 uh, comes from Leviticus 4 and also chapter 16. So if you want to read about this uh, blood uh, that was uh, to be taken into the uh, Holy of Holies, and even into the Holies, really, but also to the Holy of Holies, if you want to read about that blood sacrifice in Leviticus 4, 
and Leviticus 16 will be the two chapters you want to study on that. Uh, so he says, the high priest, uh, verse 12, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so anytime blood was taken into the holy place or the most holy place, and this is right from Leviticus 4 and also 16, anytime that blood was taken into the holy place or the most holy place, the bodies had to be burned outside the camp of Israel. There was significant typology built into that format of sacrifices. It foreshadowed the sacrificial ministry of Christ because he carried the sins where? Outside the city. I mean, he offered his blood and it went into heaven as an offering to God. But what, what about the animal? So the, tipli, the, the typification of uh, Leviticus and the sacrifice that the Jews offered they offered the blood in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God for sin. Then they went back and took the animal that was sacrificed outside the city and burned him because that showed God's disdain and uh, anger and wrath on sin because that animal had, they had laid their hands on that animal and that animal had symbolically picked up their sin. It was a sin offering. And so Jesus also went outside the camp. And so uh, anytime blood was taken into the holy place or the most holy place, the bodies had to be burned outside of the camp of Israel. There was significant typology built into that format of sacrifices. It, format, it foreshadowed the sacrificial ministry of Christ. And so the writer draws this parallel. Now parallel is taking two things and seeing them laid side by side. And so the first one we've already saw from Leviticus uh, 4 and Leviticus 16. When they offered the blood for the sin offering in that shadowy figure, in that, in that Hebrew type system, they offered the blood, it went in before the presence of God into the Holy of Holies as a sacrifice for sin. But the animal that offered that sacrifice was taken outside the city of Jerusalem and burned. Okay, that's the parallel because Jesus followed that same pattern. All right, so the writer draws this parallel here. As the high priest carried the blood of the animals into the most holy place uh, as a sin offering, so Jesus, as a new high priest, uh, one of that was typified in the Old Testament, carried his blood into the most holy place in heaven. Now when you read uh, Hebrews 9, verse 23, well, let's turn over and read it. Hebrews 9, verse 23 and 24. And we get a picture of where that blood went. Uh, Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things, now there's that parallel, see, 
between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was a shadow of better things to come, and it had parallels along with the New one. Everything in the Old System had something to say about the New System, but they were parallel. One was physical, one was spiritual. All right? It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So here, we've already covered this ground, but he's warning those Hebrews, don't go back to an old dead system. It, had, it, it served its purpose. It was very good because God instituted it. Its purpose was to show a parallel and be a shadow of better things to come. Uh, verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, in other words, into that temple, that tabernacle. He hasn't entered into that, but where did he enter? Uh, For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figure of the true. Now there again, he tells you about the parallel, the figure. It's a figure of the true. All right? But he went into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so he didn't go into the Holy of Holies as they did to offer the blood. His blood went into the presence of God himself. Uh, to appear in the presence of God forever. All right, so uh, then the bodies of Levitical sacrifices were burned outside the camp. So Jesus also was led outside the city of Jerusalem to suffer the penalty of sin. This process was specified whether for the sins of daily life in Israel or whether on the Day of Atonement. You know, they had many sacrifices, daily sacrifices, and then the atonement once a year. And here, regardless, uh, uh, whether the blood was from the bull of priests' sins offered on, or the goat of the people's sin offering, regardless of whether it was a daily or, uh, or uh, the Day of Atonement, if its blood was taken into the most holy place, or even the holy place, those bodies were burned outside the camp. And that's what you'll read in Leviticus 4 and Leviticus 16. That was the order God gave the Jews about that. So the fires were considered the fires of, in the Greek, it's S-A-R-A-P-H, Seraph, I don't know how to pronounce it, which symbolized the outpouring of divine wrath on the sins of the people. So what did it symbolize when an animal was taken outside the city? It symbolized, that animal symbolized the sin of man. And it showed God's wrath on it because it was burned outside the city. So Jesus was the one that bore in his body the penalty of our sins. And therefore he became the object of God's wrath against those sins. He felt that, that awfulness of being cut off from God. Verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate 
to make his people holy through his own blood. So Jesus uh, does make the people holy through his own blood. It is clear to see why he was led out to be crucified because that's what the record declares. He was led out to be sacrificed. Um, uh, typology uh, dictated that very way. Uh, rather, it, should, it would be better to reverse the typology here. Why were those Levitical sacrifices burned outside the camp? It was because they were patterned after the sacrifice of Christ that was foreknown in all of its details. Those sacrifices were modeled after him rather than his sacrifice being copied from theirs. So he just merely saying that, listen, this uh, sacrifice of Christ was set up before the foundation of the world. It was the mind and plan of God. And the, uh, the sacrifice of the animals and their blood going in before God for sin and the animal taken out and killing outside the city, uh, Jesus followed that same pattern, but he was the pattern for them because he was the, uh, he was the purpose of God, the eternal purpose of God. And the law came as a pattern to show this. So when Jesus was crucified outside the city, it was symbolic of the fact that he was rejected by the people of the city. It was made clear. And it was generally implied uh, rejection also by God. Thus God turned his back on Jesus. Just as any man guilty of a high-handed sin in Israel was to be taken outside the gates of the city and stoned to death in evident rejection of his immorality or blasphemy of God. And so it happened in the case of Jesus. Israel rejected him, and God turned his back on him. And therefore Jesus on the cross will cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Again, that shows for the first time he recognized separation between him and God because he was a sin offering. He stood there as a whoremonger, as a liar, a cheater, uh, a murderer, whatever the crime that you want to mention, he died for sin, the sin problem. <laughs> when he went to Calvary, he was all of those things. And First John 1, verse 4, isn't it, son? Uh, John tells us that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Not even a shade of darkness. God cannot look in a condolence way on sin at all. Five. Uh, Verse five, I'm sorry. Verse five. And so this statement Jesus made also proved to show him a man for the first time in his life in a realization of his faith in the word of God. From the word of God, he understood what he was rejected by God. He felt it. He felt the coldness of it. 
You ever been rejected by somebody that you love? You know how it feels, the emptiness, the awfulness. Anyway, so he was also, the Hebrew writer says, uh, he uh, uh, was a pattern, actually, Jesus was, of that old uh, Levitical sacrifice that went outside the city to be be burned because it showed, it declared the wrath of God on sin. Verse 13, let us then, now he's talking to you and me, well he's talking to the Hebrew people here that have obeyed the gospel and he's again uh, uh, talking to them about or, or exhorting them as to what they need to do in life's way. Let us then go to him outside the camp and in doing so bearing the disgrace that he bore. Now we already know that the world does not like us. We're not friends of the world. We never will be. Unless you want to donate and give them money and have parties and, and uh, set up some kind of a festival here, you can draw all kinds of people. I remember seeing a cartoon, this preacher of one of the big congregations, he drawed a lot of people by advertising all week that next Sunday he's going to preach a triple X sermon. And boy, everybody was there. They was lined up down the street trying to get in. There's ways that you can draw the world in, but the world is not our friend. They're not in the city of God. The only way they can come into the city of God is to uh, omit or do away with their sin. And how would, how is that done? By the blood of Christ. So they've got to obey the gospel uh, and they've got to die to self to raise in Christ a new man. Uh, Romans 6, 3-6. So the admonition is, here's what Jesus done. He was uh, taken, he was led outside the city of Jerusalem to be crucified as a sin offering just like they had done millions of times with animals. They offered the blood before God in the Holy of Holies, and then they took the animal outside the city and burned it. And all that it depicted, we've already seen. So then the admonition, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. Now again, we, we know that the world is not our friend. You're not going to go to your neighbor and expect him to be friendly because of how many scriptures you know and can quote. It ain't going to work. <clears throat> Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's true. But they don't want to hear it because they don't want that faith. Their faith is in this world here. And Jesus also told the disciples, and when he told them, he was telling us too, he said, if you follow me, the world's going to hate you. Because they hated me. And they hated me because they hated my father. And so their hatred is deep-centered, and it goes back to God. So if you're a child of God, walking the best you can in God's ways, you're identified with God that they hate. And so the church needs to 
get its senses about itself that this world is not our friend, never will be. And the reason I said that is because I've been in the Church of Christ uh, most of my life. And I've seen elders who were supposedly to be, they were supposed to be leaders of the church, uh, innovators of, of uh, builders of faith. And I've seen them hire preachers and admonish the preacher to go join all the lodges around town. Uh, can't think of some of the names of them. But the lodges that every city has. Be friends with the world. They didn't understand the scriptures, did they? And they certainly didn't understand what the Hebrew writer said. His admonition led us then, verse 13, go outside the camp bearing the disgrace that he bore. Are you going to bear disgrace? Yeah, you are. You're going to be looked on as a fool. Isn't that what Paul said in Corinthians? We're fools for Christ. That's the way the world views us. They see the doctrine we preach as being stupid. To think for a minute that a, a deliverer goes to the cross and is killed, and in that he sets up a kingdom. That's, that's ridiculous. They didn't understand that at all. And the reason they didn't to start with is because what did God choose to... Uh, that was opposite of man. 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty with men. He chose uh, the foolish things of the world to confound the things that are wise among men. And that's why he said in conclusion that to the Jew, Christ was a stumbling block. They weren't expecting a Savior to come by way of a manger. They expected him evidently to come riding out of the clouds in a white horse and a sword of vengeance, killing everybody. That's what they wanted to see, particularly the Romans. So, I've seen and I have heard supposed leaders of the Church of Christ admonishing a preacher that they just hired or a congregation to be friends with the world. You, it's a contradiction. You can't be. Uh, no more than light can, uh, uh, that darkness can dispel light. Or, uh, well, anyway. So he says, since Israel rejected Jesus and took him outside the city to die, the people are now asked to voluntarily go to him outside the city. That's what that verse said. We go to Christ outside the city, don't we? We certainly do. Uh, and these Jews need to recognize they need to leave the city of Jerusalem and go outside the city. Of course, he's talking about a physical Jerusalem versus a spiritual, isn't he? The city rejected him. Now the, uh, the invitation for his people is for them to reject the city. Now, you must leave Ju uh, Judaism is his point. You've got to drop it. You've got to leave it. Go outside its confines to unite with Jesus. Israel had abandoned him. 
So Christians now must abandon Israel. Uh, and then he says, bearing the disgrace at the end of verse 13. Bearing the disgrace relates to the external appearances of shame associated with crucifixion. The law of Moses said about crucifixion, it said, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians 3, 13. And also Deuteronomy 21, 23. These Jews were very well associated with hanging being a cursed thing on anyone. And we're to go with Jesus outside the gates of the city. And we're to be, uh, we're to bear the disgrace that he had as being an outcast, a, a, a cursed one that hangs on a tree. Uh, and of course the strange thing about it is the Christian's glory in the cross. Now, if you compare that to today, it would be like somebody saying, those people glory in the electric chair. Because anybody that goes to the electric chair is cursed. See, that's the idea here. But just as Jesus was an object of public disgrace in the eyes of Israel, so Christians must be willing to face and accept the same rejection by Israel and the consequent disgrace it brings to Christians. You've got to get ready for that disgrace. It shouldn't bother you, should it? Because of the glory that we'll receive. We do not shrink back uh, away from him because others may shame us for being Christians. And so, as that verse said, verse 13, let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace that he bore. And you will bear it. Someone once said if this, if you was tried before a court of law for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? Well, the conviction is going to be evident if you're a Christian because you're going to suffer the disgrace he suffered. You're going to suffer the laughter uh, that the world will give you because they see what you preach is stupid. It's foolish. That's 1 Corinthians 1 again, isn't it? Paul wanted them Christians there at Corinth to understand that very clearly. And so he went on and on about the fact that uh, we're considered fools by the world. Uh, in fact, he makes a statement there about the church. He says, now, brethren, you know our calling how that not many wise men after the flesh. A wise man after the flesh? That's, that's somebody that we could correlate as though it was he was one who went to college. He's one that went to... Uh, Howard University. Yeah. <laughs> All of them universities. <laughs> Learning the wisdom of man. And so, yeah, we're going to be looked on as fools. We're going to be uh, laughed at, uh, maybe not to our face, but behind our back. We know that. We are not friends with the world. We're trying to save the world. That's true. We're going to the lost with 
tears in our eyes as it were, and an ache in our heart to see them obey the gospel and be saved. Because that's God's spirit in it. Because as many texts declares that uh, God's not willing that even one man perish. Do you know of one bad man in this world? Dahmer? Uh, well, just think of a bad man. He's not willing that even one of those people on the earth go to hell. He's done everything he could do divinely. It's up to you now. It's up to you to accept the evidence and to obey the gospel. He's, uh, he's plowed the field. He's harrowed it as a farmer would. He's fertilized it. He's done everything he can to this world of man, hadn't he? He, he uh, provided a sacrifice for sin. He went after us, didn't he? God is a jealous God. Boy, when the devil tempted Eve and got her to uh, partake of the forbidden fruit, it didn't take God long to be on the scene, did it? And where was his... Now, his animosity was toward the sin of the woman and the sin of, the, of her husband that partook of that uh, forbidden fruit. But his anger was seen in a plan there in verse... Uh, what verse is it? Genesis 15. Genesis 3, 15. Because he looked at the devil and he said, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman. Between thy seed and her seed. Who do you suppose that seed of woman is? Well, Galatians 4, 4 tell you who that seed of woman is. But he said, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and he, the seed of woman, being a man, not a woman, got to make that clear to a lot of people, uh, maybe not to you personally, but to a lot of people, in this age where they're trying to make no difference, and they're trying to establish womanhood as though it was the eltopia of what God created this universe for. Oh, we're the mother of all that's born on the earth. And they get these ideas from women's liberation. that does not coincide with the Bible at all. It is contradictory in everything that it stands for. But nevertheless, so what was my point? I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Yeah, he's the seed of woman. And Galatians 4.4 4 will announce it in the fullness of the times. And boy, that statement says a whole bunch. It says when time was right. What do you mean when time was right? When God looked upon this uh, globe, uh, this situation down here on earth, when he saw that there was a pilot that would do what pilot did in his struggle for... Uh, his position as representative of Caesar. And when the Jews were cooked off in the cauldron of life until they done what they did, God saw that, and that's the fullness of time. When time was right, God sent forth his son, born of what? The seed of woman. Never in the scriptures will you read of the seed of woman except right there. 
You can follow the genealogies all the way through the Bible, and it's always the seed of the man. Because in one instance, God created the man for himself and the woman for the man. She's to the glory of man. 1 Corinthians 11, many places. I don't want to get off into that. But nevertheless, this is the only passage in all of the Bible that mentions the seed of woman. Other than Genesis 3.15 and the promise that God would, uh, that the seed of woman, being a man, will come forth and destroy your head. And so Jesus' work at Calvary was a, a work of destruction as he destroyed the power and the influence of the devil on humanity. The devil's still with us, but he has no power or influence unless we just want to give it to him. Because there's a greater power being dispelled on the cross. There was a plan and design of God before he made a world. All right. <laughs> Verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. And so to leave physical Jerusalem and all that it represented uh, to the Mosaic religion may appear to leave those who depart without a place to dwell. Here's these Jews uh, that he's writing to. Uh, I suppose you still got your Jewish sandals on when we're studying this. Uh, they would seem to be a people without a country, but they are not without their city. To people of faith, God has prepared for them a city. And that's stated over in the 11th chapter, verse 16, in our previous study. He's prepared for us a city. Somebody, or somebody read it, uh, Darren. Chapter 11, verse 16. Yeah. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to call, uh, to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. There it is. And so they have the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Remember we read that in chapter 12, verse 22. What is the church? Jerusalem. You go back to the Psalms, and I forget what psalm it was. Uh, maybe one of you can call it to memory. Where God said, I have chosen Zion, Jerusalem, for my city forever. Well, in the Old Testament, under that physical blessing, uh, that physical shadowy figure of what was coming. Uh, where did God reside? If you wanted to take a sacrifice to God or you wanted to go to God for any reason, leprosy or anything that you might have, where did you go? The literal town of Jerusalem. Jerusalem! Jerusalem! So Jerusalem had a significance, didn't it? That's where the tabernacle was. That's where the temple was. That's where you went to meet God. Where do you go to meet Him today? In a church. Where do you dwell with Him? In the church. Where does your worship meet its eltopia or its pinnacle? In the church. 
And look how people treat that, as though it were just a common, well, yeah, just kind of a common thing. Oh, boy, howdy. So, uh, to the people of faith, God has prepared for them a city, chapter 11, verse 16. They have the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and that was the, the names that it was given, the church was given in the 12th chapter, verse 22, remember? The writer makes a contrast. He says, you Jews haven't come like they did years ago, centuries ago to a mountain that uh, was burnt and smoked with uh, fire and, and things. You didn't come to such an awesome scene as that and to the voice of God that scared men to death. And they pleaded with Moses, tell that fellow to speak to us through you, if you will. God found it pleasing, so Moses became the mouth of God. He became the representative of God in speaking to the people. He delivered the Ten Commandments off of the mountain. Uh, and so the Hebrew writer in the 12th chapter, verse 22, says, You didn't come to that awesome scene that even the people feared. And Moses said, I exceedingly feared quake. It scared him after death. And then in verse 22, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly, the heavenly, to a place where the spirits of just men are made perfect, to the angels and to the church of the firstborn, Jesus, and to God, the one that makes men perfect. So, uh, it's a description of the church that we've come to. We have a city, in other words. They have a city, and what a city it is. It is a church in the present age. It will be with God eternally in heaven in the age to come. And so when the writer said, we do not have an enduring city, speaking to these people, there may be a veiled reference to the fact that the physical Jerusalem was not to endure under the onslaught of Rome. A.D. 70, remember? And so Christians do have uh, an abiding city, but not in this world. It is a city that is to come when Jesus returns to take us there. Verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. It's a funny thing about the mouth, this thing in the front of us with a voice box inside of it. It manifests who we are, what we are, whose we are, and the whole ball of wax, doesn't it? If it's of God, it worships God, doesn't it? If it knows about God, it worships God. There's no way a man can know about God and not worship Him. There's no way. That's why they don't want to know about God. That's one reason. They don't want to know about Him. Because he's going to demand, he's going to ask things of me. He's going to require things of me. His spirit will, yeah. 
It isn't that God twists anybody's arm. It is the fact that He is the source of love, 1 John 3, verse 7. He is the origin, the beginning, the fountain of love. And who can look on love and despise it? Men search their whole lives for that. But when it comes to God, they don't want that because, well, a lot of reasons. Mainly because the religious world has made stupidity out of religion, haven't they? They don't preach the word. They're out here this morning uh, with tambourines and guitars and trying to entertain people. Pianos. They're having parties. They're advertising uh, and in their uh, yard outside the building, they got all the toys for the little kids. It's a drawing uh, in, uh, situation. And they're drawing them into a worldly organization. It's not the church of the Lord. But there's no man in his right mind to be honest with himself that could refuse the grace of God if he knew it. See, that's our job to make it known to those who are asking. Peter said that. Be ready always to give answer to every man that asks you. Now, we're not to go out here and grab people by the hair. Let me tell you. No, we're not a Ayatollah Amini. It's not our job to go around telling people. It's our job to be that light that sits on a hill that cannot be hid. And so here he's going to talk about worship, fruit of the lips. Because the mouth up here with the lips and everything is what? It's an overflow pipe of the, of the heart, isn't it? Jesus said, out of the abundance of a man's heart, the mouth speaks. You don't have to talk to a man very long to see he's a Christian. He don't have to wear a badge that says, I'm a Christian. He don't have to go around, did you know that I'm a Christian? No, 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 no. He's a light set on the hill, and he cannot... The Bible says he cannot be hid. Jesus in Matthew 6 declared that. He, he can't be hid. People are watching your life. And so again, that statement, if there was, if he was on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's scary, isn't it? <laughs> but again, we're not people that's commissioned to go out here and throttle people and make them obey the gospel. <laughs> and you get hurt that way and that ain't the way salvation is it's when someone asks or sees and that causes them to ask that you're ready to tell them the hope that lies within you they want to know because they see your life sitting up there as a, as a light on a hill and they see the peace that resides in your home and the peace that resides between you and your neighbor because you love them, don't you? You're not at war with everybody. And you're not at war. You're at peace. And you have a, a value you place on everyone and the world sees that. You place it not only on those who are your comrades of your equality, but on the lowly also. On all men. They see that. That's what they see. They see the Spirit of God working through you. 
to a lost world. That's what makes you the light. And that's why they want to come to the light. Because of its glow, it's warm, it's friendly, and it dissolves the darkness, doesn't it? It makes known what's in the darkness. <coughs> and so, verse 15, through Jesus... Therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that confesses his name. <coughs> and so the book of Hebrews is built around the topic of worship of God. Uh, for the early part of the discussion, the writer consistently affirmed that under the old Hebrew system, the worshipers were not perfected in their relationship with God. But by constant, uh, by contrast, there was the clear affirmation that Christians are perfected. After all, they have immediate, unveiled access to the most holy place. That was chapter 10, verse 19. The Jew didn't have that under that old system. Under that Hebrew system, the only one that could go into the most holy was who? The high priest. And he could only go in once a year into the most holy. And he first had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin, didn't he? And then he took in the offering before God, a blood sacrifice for the people's sins, called the Day of Atonement. Atonement means at one -ment. <coughs> And so that blood brought him into at one with God in the presence of God, in the sanction of God, in the okay of God. And so, here he says the Christian has access, chapter 10, verse 19, into the very presence of, of God, into the Holy of Holies. They didn't have that, because we are priests, aren't we? Are we priests? Read Revelation 1, verse 5. He made us to be a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? Offer sacrifices. If you're offering sacrifices uh, in Christ, you're a priest. Uh, so, <coughs> the ceaseless gratitude <coughs> of a redeemed people ought to continually flow up before the Father and His Son. And it does people that knows him. <clears throat> the praise seems strongly verbal in this verse, since it is the fruit of the lips. Though it is verbal, therefore externally expressed, it is deeply spiritual and sentimental as the thanks flows from a man's heart. The fruit of the lips involves worship in song, prayers, preaching, teaching, exhorting uh, uh, the virtues and the glories of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is only a part of the sacrifices of a spiritual nature that Christians offer. They have first offered themselves as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Remember on Sunday night, studying Romans? I beseech you, brethren, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this age of man, but rather be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know what is that holy and acceptable way of God. And so God's plea to us is what? I beseech you in view of my mercy. He doesn't say, you better. Now that's the way, that's the way sometimes he's preached. At least that's the way he gets away from the, uh, gets off the pulpit. You better do this or you're going, he's going to get you. He got a record and he's going to get you. No, he's trying every way to get you, but uh, in salvation. But he beckons us in view of his mercies. Uh, possibly the sacrifices of verse 15 here would more directly relate to public worship activities on the Lord's Day. And that would not exclude individual worship on a daily basis also. But we offer the fruit of our lips. Because the lips are the overflow pipe of the heart. Now maybe they're not any plumbers here, I don't think, but being a plumber, a plumber knows that a sink or a bathtub has an overflow pipe. You know why it's there, don't you? So it doesn't flood your house, it, it overflows. And so in Christianity, your lips are the overflow pipe of your heart. Out of the abundance of a man's heart, the mouth speaks, the Lord says. Verse 16, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. These sacrifices of service to the brethren is also presented as God-pleasing uh, offerings of praise. There was a deep sense of solidarity among early Christians whether in sharing in the pain of persecution or in the fellowship of financial resources and even in the joint participation in collective worship to God. I would have liked to heard them people sing, wouldn't you? See, we've dragged a lot of people into religion because of many different reasons. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, people that's been called into the church by this uh, old ploy. Boy, you're, you're such a good person. You would be an asset to our congregation. <laughs> what about the guy that's bad? What about me? Nobody ever come to me and told me, Merle, you're such a good guy. You'd be an asset to the church. No, if you knew my previous life, you would say that'd be the last—I'd be the last person they'd come to. But that's what the, the church has been built around—is that kind of invitation. And so, that's why we sing so sadly as we do. We kind of feel like we're commanded to sing. If you see it as a commandment, it'd be best that you don't sing at all. Because it's not a commandment necessarily. It's a privilege we have. 
But is it a commandment? Yes, it is. But it's a privilege more than a commandment. I rejoice to sing about God, don't you? I rejoice to sing about the things of God. I know the little children get carried away in it once in a while. The little boy back there, he fell in love with the song, Master, the tempest is raging. The bellows are, the bellows are blowing high. Are tossing high. Tossing high. I'm overshadowed with darkness. No shelter or help is nigh. Carest thou not that we perish? Yeah, he does. Well, anyway. We sing with vigor. We do our best to preach with vigor. We teach with vigor. Uh, with the continuity and the constants uh, of faith, we preach, we teach, we stand on the Word of God. And we rejoice in the goodness of God. And so the writer says, I beseech you in view of the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And so everything that we do is a sacrifice. Uh, this phrase in Greek is a doxology. Dox in Greek means glory. It's kind of a closing remark that is characteristic of all Hold it, I'm in verse 20. We're not in verse 20, are we? What verse are we in? 16. Uh, 18. What verse? 16. 16, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, obey your leaders. Is that it? One before that. Unless you're finished with that. 16. And do not forget to do good. Verse oh. 16. No, I lost a page here. Do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices God is pleased. And so these sacrifices of service to the brethren is also presented as God-pleasing offerings of praise. There was a deep sense of solidarity amongst early Christians, whether in sharing in the pain of persecution or in the fellowship of financial resources, and even in the joint participation in collective worship to God. That ended that section and brings us to verse 17. And we're going to have to close right there. We're already running over. <clears throat>